Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Are you still sleeping? It's so late already. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, there we go. I'm Robert Kelly. Welcome uh, to our first Holy Communion Sunday. This is just one of the highlights of our year as we get to celebrate First Holy Communion uh, with uh, the kids here at the church. We've been doing it all morning. Uh, so we had about 20, 22 kids or something, and we've split them up over the three services. And so uh, we're really glad. We know we got a lot of family and friends here as well. So welcome. And sorry, you're all scrunched in. But uh, so we actually get to talk about communion today. And uh, it, the table, of course, goes by many names, depending on what your tradition is. You may have grown up calling it the communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, whatever we call it. The question really is, what is it all about? That's what we, we hope to do is try to figure out a little bit more about what this table is all about. So this afternoon, that's what I want to do. I want to talk about it as a symbol of a contract between you and your creator. So as we get underway, I think it's helpful for us to sort of reorient ourselves to how most of us experience God. And I think all of us want a God who is going to help us out, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the things we, we, we think is in his job description, is that he'll help us out a little bit. Kind of like the guy who decided he was going to go on, a, he was going to start a new diet. And so he goes on a diet, and in order to be successful, he decides that he cannot drive past his favorite bakery. So in Carl Place, that would be Cardinale's, but you all know what your favorite bakery is. And so you, you, he can't drive past it, so he changes his route so that he, he can resist the temptation of his favorite bakery. Well, one day, he forgets, and he drives down through town, and he's about to pass his bakery. And there in the window, he sees all of the goodness, right? He sees the, the donuts and the fresh-baked bread and all of the cakes and the cookies, and he starts thinking, maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. You know, maybe I'm supposed to be driving by the bakery right at this moment. And so he decides, he says, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'm going to ask God. I'm going to pray. And he says, God, if you want me to stop at that bakery and enjoy some of that goodness, then, then open up a spot for me, a parking spot right in front of the bakery. A great simple prayer. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it? On the seventh time around the block, God opened a spot right in front of the bakery. You know, that's the kind of a God we want. Just help us out a little bit here, you know. Come through for us. You know, we like God. We like spirituality. But we don't really like a religion with rules or rituals. We don't really want faith with responsibility. We want faith without responsibility. We want it with, you know, kind of good thoughts, good feelings, warm fuzzies. That's what we really want. Oh, yeah, and the promise of heaven. 
that would be perfect. And yet biblical faith is so much more than that. It's so much richer and deeper than that. So consider one of the most popular ways that Christians like to refer to their faith. They say, we say that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. How many of you have heard this? Maybe it was from like a crazy aunt or something like that. But, you know, they're like, it's a personal. So a lot of you have heard this phrase, and a lot of you have used this. Or I use this phrase as well. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, think about the most important of human relationships. You have marriage, one of the most important human relationships, personal relationships. And it's one of the few that carry with it a contract. Why? Why would it carry a contract? It's because the most important relationships, the most intimate, the most significant relationships that we have come with a contract. In fact, they are made more important and more significant because of the contract. This is how it works throughout life, actually. Even within the family, society has laws that govern the way our families get to function. So no matter how many times, as a parent, parents, listen, no matter how many times you threaten that your kid has to sleep in the shed, he, you can't do that. You're actually not allowed. You cannot kick the kid to the curb, no matter how many times you say you're going to do it. Unless, of course, he's at a certain age, and then you're supposed to kick them out to the curb. And so that's a, but that's a different message. There are contracts, if you will, that govern the most important relationships that we have. Or you could call them covenants. Covenants. Which is one of the overarching and most important themes in the whole Bible. From the very beginning, through almost every single book, all the way to the end, the idea and the theme of covenant comes up over and over and over. Now, many of us, we recoil from this idea. We pull back from it because we don't want a God with rules and responsibilities. You know, we don't want a God who's going to tell us what to do or how to live, hold us responsible for our actions. We sort of want a sweet old grandfatherly God. Maybe, you know... If, if he's involved at all, you know, it's only in a certain few limited ways. But we really mostly want him to stay out of our lives. Except we want him to give us like a big inheritance, you know, right when we need it. You know, that would be perfect. You know, think like a Santa figure mixed in with like Warren Buffett's assets. Like that's, you know, and then you mix in like a little bit of MacGyver so he could fix whatever problem we have. And now we got the perfect picture of God. But other than that, we really would rather that he mind his own business. But God is saying, I will do no such thing. I won't. I love you too much. I care for the world, for my creation too much. I simply cannot leave you alone. I can't leave you to your own devices. I can't be distant from you. How could I be? My feelings for you are simply too deep. I won't sit on the sidelines of your life. And we're saying, God, listen, listen. 
I sort of feel like we would, we would be better off as friends. You know, just a little bit of distance. It's not, it's not you, it's me, God. You know, let's just get a little bit of breathing room here in this relationship. And God is saying, no. I want so much more than that. I want a personal, I want an intimate, I want a covenantal relationship with you. It's something way more significant and way more meaningful than, than even a marriage. It's not temporal, it's eternal. And that's what he wants. And that's where the idea of covenant comes in. Covenants are important. We see this throughout the scriptures. In fact, there are great risks to not making covenants. And we've seen that in so many ways in our lives. But we have to understand the thing about covenants is that they're conditional. And this is key. Covenants are conditional. So in the ancient Near East, you would have a conquering king would kind of roll through an area and he would come up to the people and he would say, listen, now you're my subjects and I'm going to let you live. Congratulations. And I'm going to let you live as long as you pay taxes or tribute. You honor me as your king. And as long as you do this, then I will not destroy you. I will not turn your houses into rubble. And I will make certain that no one else turns your houses into rubble. I will protect you, I'll keep you safe, and you will honor me. If you do this, then I will do this. It's not unlike the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. He told the Israelites, he told Moses, if you do these things, then I will bless you. And if you do these things, then you will be cursed. You'll be destroyed. They're conditional. And if you violate the conditions of the covenant, there will be suffering, punishment, because broken covenants carry punishments. So, for instance, take a marriage covenant. You've made vows, you've made agreements till death do us part in sickness and in health, and then suddenly you decide to dissolve the relationship. Now we have no-fault divorce, so we dissolve the relationship for almost any reason whatsoever, incompatibility. And then you're shocked when you find out that they will make you pay Spousal support or child support it seems forever. And you'll hear people say, I can't believe it. I don't know what happened. They're taking so much. Well, yes, you violated a covenant. This was a sacred covenant that you said, I'm pulling out of. And society has said, you can pull out, but you're still going to pay. And you're going to pay dearly. You have responsibilities to the person you made promises to. You have responsibilities to the kids that you produced. And society says, no, there are, we will use the full weight of our judicial system to enforce the punishments. Which now, of course, it only makes sense because you can imagine what kind of anarchy would exist if we did not have covenants, contracts to protect the most valuable things. So let's say you decided to go buy a car and you gave the guy a whole bunch of cash, but you, 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 you want to do it without contracts. You don't want to do it. You know, who needs covenants? You know, who needs a piece of paper? We're all people, we try, you know, it's going to be great. So you give your money over and they give you the keys. And then the next day you see them getting in their, your car and trying to drive it off. And you run out and you say, hey, whoa, whoa, dude, this is my car. And he's like, no, it's not. You took it. Well, whose car is it? Well, did you get a bill of sale? Because if you didn't, it's not your car. It's their car. You could do the same thing with a house. Could you, you would never buy a house without signing a contract. You have to make a covenant because 
you know that if they violate the covenant, the full weight of our justice system will make certain that what is right is done. We want it this way. There are even social contracts that we talk about. We may not even write them down, but we all know what they are, right? I mean, this is why we get frustrated when people kind of act like boneheads around us, because you're like, duh, like everyone knows this. It's a social contract. I mean, you don't use that language, but they're social contracts in behavior. So like, for instance, I was working on this very message over the last couple of weeks, and I was at Starbucks. And uh, there are rules on behavior at Starbucks, no? Right, like how a person is supposed, so anyway, I'm sitting at Starbucks and there's this guy next to me yammering away on his phone. Yet, 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 business this, deal that, contract, blah, 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 talking, talking, talking. I'm like, dude, you gotta shut up. But I didn't say this because I'm, I'm working on like a message. And so, <laughs> and so I try not to like, you know, anyway. So I'm thinking this though, I'm like, I can't believe this. Now here's the irony. I have always, I, I regularly do business meetings at a Starbucks. I mean, how many people have been at a Starbucks and either had a business meeting or seen people with a business meeting and thought nothing of it, right? How many, just two of you? How many, have, really? See, every, we, we, and in fact, there's nothing wrong. And we would encourage you to go out there and have a business meeting at Starbucks. It's cool, it's right, it's great. Who, you know, road warrior, why not? But it's different when you're on the phone. And I don't know why it's different on the phone. It might be because you can only hear like half the conversation and eavesdropping isn't as effective, so it irritates us. But there's something about it that I'm like, that is so wrong. And so now, how many of you would agree that you can have a business meeting at Star Starbucks, but you shouldn't be having a business meeting on the phone at Starbucks? How many of you would agree with that? Right? All right, so turn to your neighbor and tell them, no more yammering on the phone at Starbucks. You tell them right now. You tell them right now. Turn to your neighbor and you tell them. Now shake on it, shake on it. I want you to shake on that deal. This is now a social contract to guarantee that none of us are yammering on the phone like that, you know? So, so irritating. At least it wasn't a message about patience, but that would have been awkward. Many of us relate to God this way. We say, you know what? If I do this, God will bless me. And if I do that, God will curse me. And there is some really great truth in that. But it comes with a huge, huge caveat. And we have to understand covenant to really understand why there's a caveat on this, the way this works. Now, ceremonies and sacrifices were used to increase the sacredness of a covenant. In fact, some scholars will say that they believe that the word itself, covenant, means to cut Kind of like we would say to cut a deal. It's sort of like that. You're cutting a deal. But the cutting may also apply to something else. Open, if you would, in a Bible to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, you can use an app if it's on your phone or a Bible is in the seat in front of you. Genesis 15, you're going to go to verse 8. And while you open up there, let me give you the background here. There was a guy named Abram. Now, Abram was promised by God that all sorts of like, like awesome and amazing things were going to happen to him because God had special, you know, had a special uh, favor for, had show, was showing him special favor for a whole variety of reasons. But the gist of it was this. He said, Abram, I will give you a massive family as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're going to have offspring. You're going to, you're going to be the father of many nations. And through your offspring, the world will be blessed. I mean, imagine that legacy. Imagine knowing that you're not, it's not just for you and your, for, your, for your, your family or for your tribe, that you are going to bless the whole of the world 
through one of your offspring. And we're going to establish you in this country. You're going to be in this nation, the nation of Israel. The land is going to be yours. And from that platform, the world is going to be blessed. Now, Abraham doesn't own any of the land. And he doesn't have any kids. And he's getting old. So although he believes God, he trusts God, he's saying, you know, God, how can I really know that you are going to make good on these promises? So that's where we pick up in verse 8. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So you get the picture. God has all of these, has Abram gather up all these animals, and he's got to cut them up. Now when he cuts them up, then if something happens, he kind of has this vision, he goes into like a deep sleep, and he has a dream, and God fills out some of the details as to what's going to happen, and a prophecy about his, his future children. And then in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Weird, no? Like, what a weird picture. What a weird scene. It's actually even weirder than it reads at first. So imagine you are making a contract, right? So Ryan and I, we're going to make a deal. We're going to make a contract. And it's a big deal. It's going to be a big contract, Ryan. So what we do is we gather up some animals. We cut them in half. We lay them out on the side. These are massive animals, lots of blood. The blood pours out between these animals. And you walk between the animals. And I walk between the animals. And then we meet and we say to each other, we got a deal. We cut a contract. Oh, and by the way, if you break your deal, if you break your word to me, may this be done to you. May you be cut into, may you be bled out, and may you die because you did not keep your word. And of course, you were saying to me, great, great, I accept the terms of that agreement. Just keep in mind. If you break your word to me, may you be cut up, bled out, and die. Serious, right? This is like serious stuff going on here. So like this is no like, you know, spit and make a handshake. Like this, this isn't, I'll give you my word. No, this is like you're calling down like brutal curses on your own head if you violate this deal. Now, in a normal contract, that's how it would be done. Now, if you have a king and a subject, you wouldn't need the king to walk through the middle because, of course, the king isn't, you're not going to enact that on the king. <laughs> Instead, if, if there were a king and a subject, the king would say, you walk through the animals knowing that if you violate your word to me, I'm going to cut you up and bleed you out and leave you, to, leave you for dead. The king, it's not going to happen to you because the king, of course, is saying, listen, I can kill you, your family, and turn your house into a pile of rubble. So, you know, I'm the king. And so you don't, you don't expect the king to have to subject himself to the terms of a covenant like that. He's the king. It's just not how it works. However, in this contract, it's totally different. Abram is never asked to walk through the center of the animals. He never bloodies his feet. He never has to say, may this be done to me. God doesn't insist that he goes through the center of the animals. In fact, the only one that goes through the center is the fire pot, the flaming basket, the torch. 
which is a symbol of God. So only God goes through the center of the animals. It's only God who says, hey, Abram, listen, if this contract is broken, if this covenant is broken, may this be done to me. What? It doesn't even make sense. How can God even be hurt? How, why would he make himself the subject of the consequences? When we all know it's going to be Abraham who doesn't keep his word, not God. God is going to always keep his word. So there's only one person in this deal that is possibly going to fail. Abram must have been blown away by this. He must not have understood it at all. But scratching his head thinking, I just don't even get what I just saw. This is the most bizarre covenant imaginable. It's very weird. So there was an old covenant, and it showed up throughout the whole of the Bible from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, it was the covenant that said, if in the day you eat of the, knowledge, of the tree from the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die. And of course, Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they broke the covenant, and they died. And then later on in history, at Noah's time, he says, listen, you guys have to love me and obey me. God says, you can't just do whatever you want and, and, and you know, continue to hurt each other and destroy the earth. You have to live the way I'm telling you to live. And of course, the people broke the covenant and God destroyed the whole earth. Then the nation of Israel comes on the scene and God says, listen, if you continue to break my covenant, I'm going to kick you off the land. You're all going to suffer. A whole lot of you are going to die. And of course, they broke the covenant. And they did. They got kicked out of their land. They suffered. And so many died over and over and over again. Humanity has proven that we can't hold up our side of the bargain. We can't. We don't honor the covenant. We break it time and time and time and time again. And you already know this. You know it's true because you have your own standards of goodness or rightness that you try to live by and you fail. And those are your standards, culturally conditioned. Imagine if they were God's standards. If you're at all familiar with his standards, you know how far you fall short. That's what you feel. You feel guilt. You feel shame. You know that you have actually screwed up and you have violated the covenant. And because of that, you have an internal sense even that you deserve the punishment that comes with breaking the covenant. We already know this to be true. We sort of instinctively know it in our souls. This can lead humanity to an incredible amount of despair where we try to medicate it away because we don't want to come to grips with this deeper soul reality. We try to keep so busy that we don't ever come to, to terms with it. We don't, come, we, don't want to, we don't want to wrestle with it. And then... Thousands of years later, the prophets began to speak of something different. They started talking about a new covenant, different from the old covenant. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant the prophets began to talk about. And this was a new covenant that the people would long for. Their hearts would be hungry for it. They would say, finally, I am going to be able to stand before God without fear of his wrath or his punishment that I rightly deserve for my sin. Somehow he is going to forgive my sin. He's going to do something new in my heart. He's going to create a new covenant that transforms me from the inside out, making me the kind of a person who can, who can keep this new covenant that's the hope. And then 700 years later, Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He lives a perfect life. We decide we want him dead anyway. And on the night before the crucifixion, just before he was going to die, he gathers his disciples up to celebrate the Passover meal. And in Luke 22, it tells us, that he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant. So Jesus comes on the scene and he lives the perfect life. He kept the covenant. The only one to ever live the way he was supposed to live, which means he inherited all of the blessings of the covenant, all of the promises of all the covenants. He says, they're now mine. They're mine to give to whomever I please. They're his because he, he deserved them. He earned them because he never violated the covenant. But of course, we still haven't settled the issue of punishment until we get to the cross and we realize that Jesus in fact died a sacrificial death for us. He takes the wrath of God in our place. You remember God is standing in the midst of the animals and he's saying, let this be done to me. And you think, how is it possible? How could you ever hurt God? And then Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, God in flesh. And he says, listen, you violated the covenant and the wrath of God must be poured out. The punishment has to happen. But let it be poured out on me. On the one who never deserved it. The wrath of God poured out, satisfied, satiated. As if God is saying, here, let me be ripped apart, bled out, left to die so that you will never have to. That's the basis of the new covenant. The wrath poured out. The perfect life has earned for us the benefit. And all he's saying is, listen, trust me and it is yours. It's a free gift I offer. Don't live under the old covenant anymore. That's the covenant that most of us struggle with our whole lives. And he's saying, don't do it. It's the old covenant. It was inadequate. It was incomplete. It was never going to accomplish its end. We had to institute something new, something radical. Please 
accept it. And you might say, you know what? I'm keeping God at arm's length. You may want to keep Jesus you know, at a distance. You may not want him getting too serious about you. But it's too late. It's too late. He is wildly head over heels in love with you. He's already proven it. He's given you a path back to the heavenly father. He's saying, just take it. It is yours. It's a free gift. I've already paid the price and I've already secured the blessing. Why live under the old covenant anymore? Never before has there been such a perfect blending of law and love as we see in this beautiful act of the sacrifice of the the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's what the table is about. It's a chronic perpetual reminder of this kind of love. And it's the kind of thing we try to teach the kids to try to tell them about the love of God and encourage them to, to, to dedicate their lives to a savior who desperately loves them. When we receive these elements, we take this little cracker that represents the body of Christ. And when we take it, it's as if we're saying, this body, the sacrificed one for me, the one that did suffer and die, this is, this was for me. I take it. I want it to be counted as my sacrifice. It's his. But by faith, he says it can be mine. When we take the cup, It's as if we're saying, this cup that Jesus drank, the the wrath of God poured out was the cup that, that he endured. It's as if we're saying, this was done for me. I take this into me. It becomes a part of me because it was a sacrifice that I claim as my own. Not because you deserve it, not because you are awesome, not because for no other reason than because God desperately loves you. That's why we can receive it by faith through God's grace, a gift of God.